Hello, fuckers and fuckettes. Welcome to Modestly Metaphysical, a podcast where I bring you information about trending topics in the spiritual community and where to get started on your journey. I'm Kara, and I will be your host. Hey, did you guys hear that new funky tune I added? I decided to switch it up a little bit. And also, shout out to Lumi for my new um, greeting idea, gender neutral, of course. And if you guys hear me sounding like shit or that I've been mauled by a bear, I have this terrible cold that I came back with after I went to visit family in South Dakota. I'm pretty sure my niece gave it to me as kids are just like walking germs, but um, I may have to hack up a lung. I will try my best not to do it while I'm speaking, but I hate taking multiple takes. (laughs) So if you hear me, I apologize. Also, Zuko has a newfound hobby of staring out the window and just randomly whining. Me too, you know, I want to be abducted by aliens and I'm kind of sad about it, but... If you hear some whining in the background, it's not me, unfortunately, (laughs) but it is Zuko, and um, he's just chilling, so if you hear him, I'm just acknowledging that, that it's, he he is very present. (laughs) Okay, so I'm starting a new series about philosophy. I really just love the idea of philosophy in general and it's not really that um extravagant like it's something that we all we all have a philosophy whether we realize it or not and um we use the term philosophy in a similar sense when we think about a person's basic philosophy as the code of values and beliefs someone lives by so um for example a christian's philosophy may be that we live to, um, I don't even know how to word this, but they, like, their philosophy is that there's heaven and hell, pretty much, you know, like, we live a, a righteous life. I don't even know if righteous is the right word, but you, you get what I'm fucking saying. You live correctly in order to make it to heaven, and you, like, atone for your sins or whatever, and, um, that's, like, a philosophy, and, We can also just think of, like, general principles and guidelines as a philosophy. Um, It's not the same thing as being a philosopher, but you don't have to be a philosopher to ask philosophical questions. You just have to be naturally curious and a thoughtful person. Some examples of questions that philosophers study are, like, does God exist? What's the meaning of life? Why do innocent people suffer? Um, is everything a matter of opinion, etc., etc.? Um, and the word philosophy actually comes from Greek roots, meaning the love of wisdom. And um, yeah, they just devoted themselves to these early philosophers devoted themselves to asking the quote-unquote big questions of life, and that's kind of like where it all started. And it's one of the oldest. I don't know if it'd be a science, I guess, but just one of the oldest practices because everyone is naturally born curious, I feel. That's my opinion. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen that video, but um, also I'd like to take note that 
you may not agree with some of the philosophies that I share. I am sharing them from a strictly observational point of view, and I will give my um, take on it or what I believe in and if I agree with it, but I'm sharing it merely so it may help someone else find what they believe in or something that they really resonate with. I found myself in that position when I took my first philosophy class in college, and um, it really did help me understand that there is literally no correct way to look at life, and there's always an opposite for something that you may believe in, and it really just opened my eyes to the duality of just thought and life in general. Also, I would love to dedicate this series to my college philosophy professor, he will never hear this podcast. He lives a very off-the-grid life. But he really challenged me to question why I thought the way I thought. And he didn't know it at the time, but he really helped me through a difficult time of my life by just being the professor of that class. And just the way he thought was very, very intriguing to me. No matter what someone presented as their belief on a particular topic, he would have an argument for the opposite side, and you never knew where he stood on a certain topic because he would have valid points for each side, and he really made me challenge myself to think critically and analyze both sides from an objective point of view, which I think is very important in just matters of life because you can't always have such a polarized opinion about everything. Um, and he really taught me to first learn and then form opinions and not form an opinion because everyone else is forming that opinion and then learn afterwards. So very interesting. He always made me challenge myself to think deeper and greater and so for that, thank you, Professor Stecklin. This series is dedicated to you. You'll never hear this, but I'm hoping that um, anytime someone plays this, this positive energy spoken about you is sent your way. And I'm forever grateful for what you've taught me. So thank you. So I'm going to kick this episode off with just a little bit about philosophy in general. Um in, in practice, philosophy consists of the systematic and comprehensive study of certain questions that center on meeting, meaning, sorry, my nose is stuffy, <laughs> interpretation, evaluation, and logical or rational consistency. So the primary areas of philosophy are metaphysics, um, which is sometimes termed like ultimate reality. And this would go beyond the physical senses and beyond ordinary science, so existential kind of questions. And um, please don't fucking, like, bully me for butchering some of these, but epistemology from the Greek for knowledge, and that's the branch of philosophy that asks questions about knowledge, its nature and origins, and whether or not it's even possible. Um, so this would involve standards of evidence, truth, belief, sources of knowledge, um, memory and perception. And this cuts across all other branches of philosophy. And then ethics from the Greek word ethos, 
and this encompasses the study of moral problems, practical reasonings, right and wrong, good and bad, um, virtues and vices, etc. So that's something that a lot of people, we do have ethical philosophies that we don't realize are philosophies. And then social and political philosophy are concerned with the nature and origins of the state or government, um, the exercise of power, the effects of social institutions, ethnicity, gender, social status, and um, the strengths and weaknesses of different societies. And other important areas of philosophy would be logic, which is the study of rules or correct reasoning, um, aesthetics, the study of perceptions, feelings, judgments, and that comes with like the appreciation of art and beauty and objects in general, and ontology, which is the study of being and what it means to exist. So philosophers sometimes concentrate on only one of these primary areas, and um, some philosophers will go as far to reject whole areas of philosophy as unfit for study. For example, a logician might view metaphysics as overly abstract and um, confusing, which some people are just like wired that way. That same way as like numbers don't make sense to me, but numbers are like fucking art to some people. It's the same kind of thing. I think it just depends on the person. And I think it's beautiful that we can all think in different ways and believe different things. And um, just the character of human existence, being able to think in such polar opposite ways is really extraordinary to me. Um, there are different archetypes that we'll cover as we go through the chapters. And that's just something that's like um, the skeptic, the utilitarian, sages, that kind of thing. Um, they just kind of encompass a certain energy surrounding the philosophies. And um, yeah, so philosophy is pretty much just the search of truth and across all cultures and it's really interesting so I think that this is going to be a beautiful series and everyone has a place in philosophy everyone is able to put their input I did if you're listening to this on Spotify I did put a poll in the question box I'm not sure how it pops up but um, it's like a new feature that I saw on Anchor which is like the platform that I use to record this. And it um, allows you to ask questions through Spotify. So I'm going to put that for each episode. And if you guys have any questions, comments about the particular topic, I would love to hear. And I'd love to do a Q&A after every five episodes or so about what you think. Now into the good stuff. I'm going to start this series off by going over the Asian sages. You guys have definitely heard of these three men. One of them I think is kind of like a, they're not sure if he was a real man or if he was like a folklore kind of thing or if he is like an embodiment of multiple people. Um, but the three men are Lao Tzu, Confucius, and Buddha. And Lao Tzu is the founder of Taoism which is what the yin and yang symbol comes from. Um, so you guys have been somewhat familiarized with it. 
And then Confucianism, you've definitely heard some of his quotes. He is also just like widely quoted and um, mentioned, even like learning in, in school and stuff. And then Buddha, I feel like everyone has at least heard of Buddhism um, or Buddha. And so he's probably the most popular and I will be covering them in that order. And I want to just start with a quote from each of them. So Lao Tzu says, who knows why heaven dislikes what it dislikes? Even the sage consider, consider, man, dude, I have fever brain, considers it a difficult question. And then Confucius, he who learns but does not think is lost. He who thinks but does not learn is in danger. And then Buddha, if you will now and at all times, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying, only concentrate on eliminating analytical thinking, at long last you will inevitably discover the truth. So that, the, that's kind of just a little tidbit <laughs> from each of them. But um, first, I will kind of cover the um, what a sage is, then I'll move into... Taoism, Lao Tzu, um, yin and yang, and then all of that, um, then into the others of Confucianism and where all of this kind of came about from, and then Buddhism, and just kind of flow through it in that manner, and I will be giving any insight or input that I have along the way, and quotes here and there, all that good stuff, and... That's kind of the path that I'll follow on this episode, but it's going to be very interesting. So buckle in and we're going to get started. So these three men are some of the most influential philosophical people and they are considered the sages. A This is a therapeutic figure who combines religious inspiration with extraordinary insight into the human condition, and this is the oldest philosophical archetype, and the English word sage is derived from the Latin sapiens, meaning wise. The term sage has been used to refer to masters associated with religious traditions and to the wise elders of a group or a tribe, a tribe. Um, philosophers who address how we live and whose lives reflect noteworthy integrity, compassion, and courage are also referred to as sages. As a rule, the ancient sages focused on identifying the root causes of happiness and unhappiness. And today, the title sage is associated with individuals who manifest a deep, lifelong commitment to learning and teaching that extends beyond an academic or merely theoretical interest in living wisely. So, pretty much just a person who combines religious views and just insight into why humans are the way they are and why we feel the way we feel. And um, honestly, like it's the one that I resonate with the most just because um, just the spiritual aspect of it. And it's, it's just very understandable and it's easy for me to grasp. So to start in so these three men are all asian so in ancient asian cosmologies all events were said to be interconnected and in ancient chinese cosmology everything was influenced by the harmonious working together of heaven and earth following the tao or tao 
I say Tao, but of all existence. This literally means the way or the path, and it cannot be precisely defined or named. It is translated as the source of all existence, the principle of all things, the path of the universe or moral law, and the Tao unfolds and influences all nature while remaining hidden from sensory experience. So to me, this is very aligned with the idea of God or source or universe because it's like this um, ominous, ominous meaning like all seeing um, or what is it called? Omnipresent, omnipresent energy that just literally can see and feel everything and we're all connected through it. Um, For you science brain people, this is similar to just like um, the law of vibration, uh, things of that sort, of everything being interconnected through this energy. And it's very, to me, it makes sense because we all grew up either learning about like there's some sort of outside influence beyond us or like religious affiliation. And I think that this really um, can teeter back and forth between the ideas and be interpreted to our belief system. So it's very understandable for me. So in this cosmology, heaven and earth constitute a single reality, a sort of heaven earth rather than two um, opposed and separate realities. So nature consists of the continual interaction of two opposing but not separable forces known as yin and yang. So yin is um, negative, dark, destructive male. Um, And I say male meaning like the energy, not the gender. And yang is strong, positive, light, and constructive. So the female or um, feminine energy. And so heaven is yang and earth is yin, and they exist in a perpetually harmonious balance, um, actually a perpetual balancing according to Tao. And yin and yang go so far back into Chinese history that we can't be sure of their original meanings. The classic Confucian text, the doctrine of the mean says, quote, equilibrium is the great foundation of the world and harmony its universal path. So beautiful. And by the 5th century BCE, yin and yang were thought of as inextricably linked together. I I was like, I don't, I'm not sure inextricably. I feel like I said that right, but I'm sometimes, I I don't know, I have fever brain, but (laughs) I digress. Each was viewed as an expression of the other, um, operating in a tandem in a never-ending cycle of coming together and falling apart, um, birth and death, wet and dry, day and night, good, evil, all of that. So this ceaseless interplay of opposing forces is the natural order of things. So part and whole cannot be understood or exist without each other. So to me, it's like you can't have something be defined as a mountain without having a valley. You can't have, you know, something be explained as good if you don't know that there's something worse than it. So it's this constant balance between the two. And so there is no firm, permanent, and fixed divisions between the spiritual and physical or between the natural and the supernatural. Nor is there a distinct division between the divine and human. 
or between reason and intuition? So you might be asking, but if life consists of some fundamental, never-ending, and harmonious exchange, why do we so often experience it as a series of apparently discrete, independent events and either-or options? We experience life, or more properly, the illusion of life, as discrete events because we are unenlightened and confused, essentially. Unaware that the flow of Tao cannot be trapped, we identify with particularities. We prefer the familiar to the exclusion of all else. We cling to things for fear of losing them. We confer- we confuse uh, labels with perception. So we confuse words with experience. And it falls to the sage to identify and preserve Tao by refining the way we talk about it. So elusive is this goal that even the sages with all their wisdom, remained susceptible to the partial view. They disagree over whether human beings are naturally good or naturally evil, or whether Tao is best realized actively through social customs and training, like Confucius beliefs, or through setting aside all personal striving while spreading compassion to others, like Buddha. Lao Tzu recommends passively going with the flow of Tao by abandoning social cultivation and following our natural instincts, Yet, for all of their apparent differences, the sages insist that, if there's a word for it, that suffering, division, and strife need not be our permanent condition, for we all share a human nature from which we can learn. Religion, philosophy, culture, and politics are themselves manifestation of Tao. They interact as complementary parts of a single reality, perpetually sinking balance. So the sages focus on achieving harmony and virtue here and now as a response to the social conditions in which they lived, just as a little um, tidbit about where and why they thought the way they thought. So for Lao Tzu and Confucius, this is a time of a widespread political and social turmoil that came to be known as the period of warring states. And um, if you guys didn't know, the Asian countries like China and um, India are some of the oldest countries in the world or just the oldest. um, They're not necessarily democracies, but like governments, I guess. So this all starts in like BC, like 700 BC or 400 BC. So it was a while. So I think that... The period of the Warring States began in, like, around 450 BC and lasted for, like, 550 years. And some people, historians being the people, (laughs) push it as far back as um, 770 BC. So, a long time ago. So, the period of the Warring States was marked by fierce struggles for power and um, power waged by a succession of warring princes the resulting civil wars became increasingly violent and um, armies ignored the customs and traditional rules of conduct known as Li that had previously prevented uh, wholesale pillage and destruction. And each atrocity that was committed was answered with an equal or greater atrocity. So they lived in a very, um, very difficult time of history. 
So the fully human sensitivity links the three sages we'll look into in this episode, each of whom speaks from intimate knowledge of suffering and disappointment. And that's why I kind of mentioned what kind of life they were living in at that time, because they experienced this and they went through it. And I think a huge part of having credibility is having experience, not necessarily age or what may have you, but, um, they just offered anyone who will listen the fruits of their hard-earned quote research or experience and um they perform a very complex social function they are part physician of the soul part prophet part preacher philosopher part fellow seeker they are the teacher and the student and um, simultaneously and that's something that i really resonate with so um we will also in the next episode look at western sages like socrates um marcus aurelius and a couple others so if you are unfamiliar with the teachings of the ancient sages don't be fooled into thinking that because they talk about harmony and balance that they are anti-life figures who don't have anything practical to offer a high-tech high-energy individualistic competitive society um Perhaps the high-tech specialized nature of our lives means that just the opposite is true. The lasting appeal and influence of the sages suggests that we're not completely sold on the pursuit of fame, power, riches, um, even though we just can't toss our interest in them aside. In distinct but overlapping ways, these archetypal figures encourage us to achieve sagehood for ourselves. So... Just to think about some contemporary examples of sages, I, or like what specific qualities or teachings are sage-like to me, especially with just what, how much technology we have and how advanced things are and how fast-paced everything is, I would literally, I don't know, because it, to me, it's um, still people who practice these religions that I would consider sage-like or even... Um, as you guys know, I'm not Christian, but there is a certain guy on um, YouTube, I see him come up a lot, that really preaches well, and I would consider him to be sage-like. Um, I can't remember what church he's with, but he has a lot of really good YouTube videos, and he relates it to current human experience and just how things are now with like current relationships. Um how to talk to people, etc., things like that. So I would consider um, him to be equivalent to like a contemporary example of a sage, as well as people like um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's still very traditional in his beliefs, but um, he's contemporary nonetheless. So that's kind of what I um, would explain the sages as and just where their thoughts come from and the time periods they come from. So now we'll get into the do-nothing sage who is Lao Tzu or the founder of Taoism. Legend says that Lao Tzu, circa 575 BC, was a bureaucrat in ancient China only known by a nickname, 
variously translated as old master, old man, old boy, or old philosopher. And he may have compiled his book, The Tao Te Ching, under a pseudonym as a form of self-preservation since he lived during the instability of the period of the Warring States. The scholar A.C. Graham suggested that living in a state of perpetual fear taught the reclusive Lao Tzu, whoever he really was, to develop a self-preserving habit of evasive speech. In fact, however, we know very little about Lao Tzu. And this was why I mentioned earlier how it is a possible theory that he is actually like a group of people um, and even like a, um, I don't want to step on anyone's toes by saying this, but a, um, equivalent comparison to like Jesus where he was almost like, um, you know, beyond the normal human power. So according to legend, when he was 160 Yes, 160 years old, Lao Tzu grew so disgusted with the hypocrisy and decay of his time that he decided to resign from his position as a bureaucrat to pursue virtue in a more natural environment. Um, Heading west, he reached the Hanku Pass. Some of these names I'm going to butcher, but the Hanku Pass, where the keeper of the pass recognized the old sage and said, you are about to withdraw yourself from sight. I pray you compose a book for me. And Lao Tzu honored the man's request by producing a little 5,000 word book known as the Tao Te Ching. And if you have not read this book, it is very interesting and um, very relatable to current human condition and just way of thinking. It's almost similar to the Bible where there's just like theories and practices and words of wisdom that you can abide by no matter who or what you believe in. So it's very interesting. Um, You can get like pocket versions of it and I suggest giving it a read if you haven't. But next to the Analects of Confucius, the Tao Te Ching is the most influential book in Chinese history. Nearly a thousand commentaries on it have been written in China and Japan alone. The Tao Te Ching, or the classic way in the power, is the second only to the Bible in number in the number of English translations available. Today, interpretations of Taoism are continuously emerging in popular philosophical, spiritual, and psychological literature. What accounts for the power of this volume, um, usually divided into 81 chapters of a page or less in length. Some scholars claim that the Tao Te Ching is so cloudy and obscure, so romantic and poetic, that the reader is free to make it mean anything. To them, the popularity of the Tao Te Ching derives from its lack of clarity, from its ability to mean all things to all people, from just it being so vague. A more intriguing possibility is that the book is credited to the secretive, perhaps fearful old philosopher, expresses genuine, timeless wisdom. Let's see 
what Lao Tzu has to say in to us in the 21st century. So rather than presenting a philosophical 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 system or philosophic system, Lao Tzu struggled to express a sense of the ultimate underlying great principle, rule, or cause of quote the way things are. So Lao Tzu refers to Tao in poetic, suggestive terms. He appeals to our natural instincts and, and intuitions. In doing so, he hopes to render a little injustice as possible to the throbbing, rich, ever-flowing stream of the way. And um, Tao, or Tao is, he implies, too rich, too big, and too small, simply, quote, too much to be trapped by definition, description, or system. Thus, he often speaks in apparent contradictions and pairs of opposites. He points out the rest of the story by calling our attention to overlooked but essential aspects of the way. In a source book in Chinese philosophy, Wing Sit Chan, oh man, I don't know how to say it, but Wing Chan, Wing Sit Chan, points out that Tao does not refer to a system or moral truth, but more to a way of life. And this is a quote. Um, In the opening stanza of the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu signals us that this is not an attempt to articulate Tao accordingly to the limiting beliefs of rational consistency. Um, It cannot be captured in systems or in words. And so the opening lines of the chapter one of the Tao Te Ching is, quote, the Tao can be told of is not the absolute Tao. The names that can be given are not the absolute names. The nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of all things. As for the way, the way that can be spoken of is not the constant way. As for names, the name that is that can be named is not the constant name. The nameless is the beginning of the 10,000 things. The name is the mother of the 10,000 things, end quote. So each translation approximates a sense of something, um, but can't explicitly define the way. And I think that's kind of like, he's very poetic in the way he speaks. So I feel as though that's um, kind of, it's a beautiful way that he like, is interpreting the way that like the Tao cannot be defined and it's confusing and elusive and it's kind of the way that he portrays it. So I think it's a very, very beautiful thing. So as we have seen, according to the ancient Chinese cosmology, the whole of nature consists of the continual interaction of two opposing forces known as yin and yang, um, which are, linked together in this never-ending cycle. According to Lao Tzu, recognizing this realizes that conditions call up opposite conditions and thus nothing is permanent. What we call bad produces the good and the good is is but the necessary other side of the bad and the reverse is also true. What we call good produces the bad. The bad is but the necessary side of good, the opposite side. Um, understanding this, the sage is patient, knowing that today's unfortunate circumstance will change into something good. So, it's very true to me. I mean, I feel like the 
when I feel super sad, I get happy knowing that it is possible for me to feel the exact opposite or that the exact opposite emotion exists and that everything is impermanent. So Lao Tzu preaches his doctrine without words as a strategy for surviving in difficult times by turning away from the common values and reversing common priorities. He repeatedly advises his readers to prefer yin rather than yang. The following chains of oppositions are culled from the Tao Te Ching. So he's saying that yin is to be preferred and yang is to be resisted. So yin is nothing, empty, um, still, soft, or bent. And um, yang, which is to be resisted, is doing something, um, moving, strong, hard, so more so taking like a passive approach to life. So if Lao Tzu is correct, if there is one undivided way, then neat, fixed, hard distinctions are arbitrary and misleading. Nothing is purely matter of energy. Nothing is completely male or female, uh, wet or dry, good or bad. As the um, Western philosopher Heraclitus said, all things are becoming. The good and the bad exist in an everlasting exchange, and the names we give conditions depend on our circumstances and temperaments. For instance, rain is a good is good in a time of drought, bad in a time of flood. Great size might be good on the football field. Great size will be bad when trying to squeeze through a tiny window during a fire. The good and the bad are relative opposites. Things become good or bad according to our reactions, and they're not fixed. So according to Lao Tzu, we glimpse Tao in the flux of life. Chaos and disorder are only apparent. They are interpretations and judgments made from small or fixed perspective. Things seem out of control when we focus on isolated particulars instead of looking for patterns. So the sage embraces opposition and flux, yin and yang. So if everything is a part of one whole, why bother to resist yang and prefer yin? To understand what Lao Tzu is doing, it helps to remember two things. First, Lao Tzu was interested in surviving during a period of widespread corruption and violence, and the common reaction of people in such conditions then as now was to meet force with counterforce. Rulers, um, their underlings, and even the common people were constantly taking action, doing things, planning, scheming, trying to get what they wanted through force um, any way that they could. The result then, as now, was continuous commotion, busyness, frustration, stress, and exhaustion as individuals, groups, and rulers fought to impose their wills on each other. And can you recognize kind of the apparent yang principle here? It is control, but as Lao Tzu saw it, no one really has control. There is always something beyond some process something that seems to have its own purpose and that something as you no doubt know as now the Tao is there's nothing we can do about it like it's out of our control so control is just a fleeting object to grasp at 
So if Lao Tzu pushed to get people to let go of attempts at control, then he would violate his own insight. Besides, it was and is only natural for push to come to shove for force to produce counterforce. If Lao Tzu actively and forcefully argued for or promoted his doctrine, he would engender its very opposite. And so his odd answer is to do nothing and great deeds are accomplished. So often translated as do nothing, the doctrine of Wu Wei is most intriguing is the most intriguing aspect of Taoism. The literal translation of Wu Wei is not to act, but it is probably more accurate accurate to think of it as a warning against unnatural or demanding action. Demanding as in, I demand XYZ. In the following passage, A.C. Graham calls our attention to the paradoxical nature of this crucial Taoist principle. And he says, quote, the paradox that the way to attain a goal is to cease to aim at it deliberately is most explicit in Lao Tzu's constant appeals to, quote, do do nothing, Wu Wei. This term, which goes back to Confucius, is often translated by such innocuous phrases as non-action to avoid giving the impression that Taoists recommend idleness but it seems better to compare the paradoxical force of the Chinese expression. Wei is ordinary human action deliberately or deliberated for a purpose in contrast with the spontaneous process of nature. Man takes pride in distinguishing himself from nature by his purposive action. Lao Tzu, by a classic reversal, describes the behavior of the sage as doing nothing, end quote. Here, Natural does not mean common or widespread, but natural in the sense of healthy, spontaneous, and in harmony with Tao. And um, the, the spontaneous side of this stands in contrast to calculation in the careful weighing of advantages and disadvantages and um, social image and other priorities and considerations that get us out of touch with the natural order of things. So doing something like planning, pushing, scheming, fixing is exhausting because doing something never ends. It never completely accomplishes its goal. And doing nothing, on the other hand, relaxes the body, calms the mind, loses the grip of categories like judgments and labels, um, made habitual by naming, uh, frees the current thought from more fluid differentiations and instead of pondering choices it lets problems solve themselves as inclination spontaneously finds its own direction which is the way so when Lao Tzu says by doing nothing great deeds are accomplished he does not mean by sitting like a lump no matter what great deeds are accomplished he means that by taking no contrived calculated controlling action, we are most likely to contribute to improving conditions around us. Rather than set out to, quote, save the environment, the sage spontaneously picks up trash while he takes his morning walk. Rather than agitate and continue to put an end to racism, the sage naturally and spontaneously, which means without calculation or ulterior motive, associates, um, with all sorts of people and naturally and spontaneously 
walks away when a co-worker tells racist jokes. Thus, the sage preaches without preaching and teaches without lecturing. Um, according to Lao Tzu, the best way to deal with social turmoil is to not to do anything about it. <laughs> if this sounds crazy to you, you're not alone. Just think of how much time and energy we devote to solving problems, fixing things, um, winning the war on drugs, ending racism and poverty. In today's jargon, we are inc encouraged to be proactive and not reactive. And the question is, does aggressive social and political action really accomplish its goals or does it result in contest after contest? Um, and just like have more struggle against each other for control? And can social progress be linked directly to specific efforts or does something more mysterious and more complex account for social and technological change? And is there such thing as a progress pure and simple or is the very notion of progress itself a judgment? Um, all very valid questions. So, um, yet in many ways we live without guarantees of physical safety, financial security, social harmony, and sometimes it seems as if we live in our own period of warring factions. A time during which almost any significant action taken to legislate or enforce one's um, notion of social order and harmony generates a counterforce from opposing factions as gener generations, nations, uh, ethnic coalitions, political affiliations, and religious groups ceaselessly jump to action with grand plans to proactively fix things. And no matter what's accomplished, struggle and turmoil remain, just in different forms. So... Lao Tzu says, the more taboos of the world, the more the poorer the people. The more sharp tools among the people, the stupider the state. The more men's arts and skills, the more oddities arise. The more laws are proclaimed, the more thieves and bandits there will be. Hence the sage says, if I do nothing, if I do nothing of themselves, the people are transformed. If I love stillness of themselves, the people are correct. If I meddle in nothing of themselves, the people are rich. If I desire nothing of themselves, the people are unhewn. So according to Lao Tzu, we would be wise to, un to learn to live in harmony with Tao in the midst of this world, a world of overpopulation, um, commercialism, aggressive politicians, global terrorism, environmental insult, and our own strong, willful desires to get things done, to get ahead, to hoard wealth the whole seemingly irresistible, frustrating commotion that we know as life in the high-tech 21st century, um, in, harmony, in harmony with Tao, we can survive even blossom in stressful times. And that is kind of the whole belief of what Taoism is and um, what Lao Tzu believed and where he came from. And next, we have the social sage, or Confucius. So Confucius lived from 551 to 479 BC, BCE. I don't know if it makes a difference, but Confucius is the Latinized name of Kyung Fu Tzu, or Master Kyung. 
in the honorific name of Kyung Chu of Lee, a legendary teacher who uh, vainly sought high political office so, he, so that he could initiate a series of governmental reforms. In response to what he saw as widespread social decline, Confucius took a more active approach than Lao Tzu and promoted social order based on benevolence, custom, and personal moral cultivation. As a teacher and would-be political reformer, Confucius tried to produce political harmony by cultivating moral harmony within each individual, guide the people by governmental measures, and regulate them by the threat of punishment, and the people will have no sense of honor and shame. Guide the people by virtue and regulate them by lee, which was the rules of conduct, um, and the people will have a sense of honor and respect. And that is a quote from Confucius. One um, disciple characterized Confucius as gentle but dignified, yet not harsh, um, polite, and completely at ease. When another disciple admitted that he had been unable to describe Confucius to the king, Confucius said, why didn't you tell him that I'm a man who forgets all worries when he is happy and who is not aware of the old age, that old age is coming on? To a disciple who liked to criticize people, Confucius said, ah, say, I don't that must be the guy's name, say, or zay, I don't know, S-Z-E. You are very clever, aren't you? I have no time for such things. <laughs> on another occasion, some Young people from a village known for mischief-making came to see Confucius, who welcomed them. This surprised his disciples. And he said, why be harsh with them? What concerns me is how they come and not what they do when they will go away. When a man approaches me with pure intentions, I respect his pure intentions, although I cannot guarantee what he does afterwards. Zuko is snoring. But... Um, Confucius was not always so accepting, however, particularly when it came to the, quote, inferior or petty man. He especially disliked hypocrites, whom he called goody-goody thieves of virtue and rice bags. That is, uh, people only good for filling their bellies with rice. So Confucius took good manners and proper, proper social customs seriously because he was convinced that they are necessary for a social order and individual moral cultivation. He is said to have struck an elderly man on the shin with a walking stick for singing disrespectfully at the man's mother's funeral. And as a young man or a young boy, Confucius said to the ill-mannered fellow, you were unruly when grown up. You have accomplished nothing, and now in your old age, you refuse to die. You are a thief. <laughs> so we love an honest man, honestly. So um, he has another quote that I really like. There's a few of them that I think really kind of encompass his beliefs. But he said, a great man demands it of himself, and a petty man demands it of others, which I think is like honestly a good thing to live by and um another quote he has let's see when substance exceeds refinement and one becomes rude when refinement exceeds substance one becomes urbane it is only when one's substance and refinement are properly blended that he becomes a superior man so he was i like his beliefs honestly 
but Confucius probably began his teachings in his 20s or 30s. Legend has it that he was the first man in Chinese history to to devote his whole life to teaching, uh, teaching even when he worked in a public official or worked as a public official in his home province, province, excuse me, of Lu. Although today he has a reputation as a conservative wedded to tradition in his time, Confucius was a daring and radical educator who defined traditional practices by making a new form of character education as opposed to vocational training available to all social classes. Um, He is said to have had as many as 3,000 pupils at once. In spite of his open-door approach to education, Confucius attracted a a special class of gentlemen scholars known as the literati. The literati dominated Chinese history and culture for thousands of years. When he was 56, he retired from civil service because his superiors were uninterested in his ideas. And for the next 13 years, he wandered and taught in what um, Wing Sit Chan calls a desperate attempt at social reform, traveling from state to state in search of a ruler who would listen to him. He seemed to have had almost no success in selling his reforms, although he did manage to win audiences with at least four dukes, and at 78, dejected and disappointed, he returned to Lu, where he continued to teach, write, and edit until his death. Despite his failures as a political reformer, um, Confucius remains one of the great teachers of all time, probably surpassing even Socrates in the subsequent influence he has had on culture. Like Socrates, Um, Confucius was witty, humane, complicated, confident, and modest. And like Socrates as well, Confucius was unimpressed by wealth and social standing. And he said, the people who live extravagantly are apt to be snobbish. And people who live simply are apt to be vulgar. I prefer the vulgar people to the snobs. (laughs) So I really like Confucius. He seems like a good guy. He seems like someone I would get along with. But shortly after he died, Confucius wept and said, or did I say after he died? (laughs) Before he died, Confucius wept and said, for a long time, the world has been living in moral chaos and no ruler has been able to follow me. Leaning on a stick, he walked slowly towards his door singing, ah, the mountain is crumbling down. The pillar is falling down. The philosopher is passing out. A collection of Confucius's conversations known as the Analects is the single most influential book of Asian philosophy. Two other important Confucian texts are the book of Menicus or Men- Mencius and the Sun Tzu named after their authors, the Confucian philosoph- philosophers Mencius and Sun Tzu. So M-E-N- C-I-U-S, Mencius, I think that's how you would say it. Um, But all of these names, especially with like Greek names and stuff, they're always pronounced way different than what I think. So, and then Sun Tzu is H-S-U-N-T-Z-U. And if one word characterizes the overall approach of the ancient sages, it is humanism. 
the name given to any philosophy that emphasizes human welfare and dignity. In general, humanism is based on the belief that human intelligence and effort are capable of improving present conditions. And Confucius's humanistic or humanistic notion that man can make the the Tao great or the way great was a radical departure from the the traditional Chinese emphasis on nature spirits. In the Analects, we are told that the master did not talk about marvels, feats of strength, irregularities, or gods. Um, when he was asked about serving ghosts and gods, Confucius said, until you can serve man, how can you serve the ghosts? When he asked, he, when he asked about death, he said, until you know about life, how can you know about death? In other words, we should not be distracted by non-human matters that do not concern us. Um, when asked about wisdom, Confucius said to work at doing right for the people and to be reverent to the ghosts and gods, but keep them at a distance may be called wisdom. So Confucian humanism is rooted in Confucius's vision of himself as preserver and restorer of a declining culture rather than as an inventor or creator of something new. And it is in transmitting but not originate, originating, trusting in and loving the ancient that I would venture to compare myself, he said. In contrast to contemporary educational practices, Confucius stressed uh, social preservation over individual creation, and Confucius acknowledged the need to think but focused on the need to think but focused on the importance of learning. And he said, I used to go without food all day, without sleep all night to think. And he said, no use better to learn. And when he said to learn, he meant learn the way of Chung Yang, the golden mean, variously translated as the mean, moderation, normality, and universal moral law. Chung Yang literally means centrality and universality universality yeah according to wing sit chan the mean is the same as equilibrium or harmony by restoring equilibrium to the individual confucius thought order would be restored to the family to other relationships to the state to the world to the universe and the doctrine of the mean a text that some ancient scholars attributed to confucius's grandson expresses confucius's I hate saying that, (laughs) his characterization of Tao as a universal moral mean. And what heaven imparts to a man is called human nature. To follow our nature is called the way or the Tao. Cultivating the way is called education. The way cannot be separated from us even for a moment. What can be separated from us is not the way. Therefore, the superior man is cautious over what he does not see and apprehensive over what he does not hear. There is nothing more visible than what is hidden and nothing more manifest than what is subtle. Therefore, the superior man is watchful over himself when he is alone. Chung Ni, or Confucius, said, the superior man exemplifies the mean, or Chung Yung. The inferior man acts as contrary to the mean. The superior man exemplifies the mean because as a superior man, he can maintain the mean at any time. 
and the inferior man acts contrary to the mean because as an inferior man he has no caution and he said perfect is the mean for a long time few people have been able to follow it so in contrast to Lao Tzu's let it be sense of Tao Confucius confines the meaning of Tao to the proper course of human conduct and the organization of government. So Confucius's focus on the organic relation of Tao and human virtue, or Te, marked the first time those concepts came to philosophical prominence in Chinese philosophy. Traditionally, Te, or virtue, meant potency, the power to affect others without using physical force. In this sense, virtue is morally neutral in the way that a knife's virtues, strength, flexibility, sharpness, are neutral. The same knife can be used to save a life in surgery or to take a life in anger. For both good and bad purposes, strength, flexibility, and sharpness are virtues in a knife. Although Confucius sometimes uses virtue in his functional, morally neutral sense, he also expands it to mean the capacity to act according to Tao and to bring others to Tao. In that sense, Tao and virtue cannot be separated. According to Confucius, producing a harmonious society based on a good government and in virtuous human relationships could only be accomplished by mastering and honoring um, the Li, which literally is ceremony so like traditions or it's like the conduct of acting socially so lee encompasses rites customs and conventions ranging from ritual sacrifices honoring one's ancestors to everyday etiquette and good manners and if we don't master this conduct we stray from Tao and virtue and degenerate into disorder and imbalance so if you're not a good person, it causes that to be like a ripple effect and affect not only like the people around you, but the larger um, bodies, like governments and, and such. And all in all, um, Confucius believed in altruism and just being... A full human he believed in something called gen which is general human virtue or like being humane and benevolent and kind which he considered like full humanness which we only achieve by learning how to balance the needs of self and others and the individual and society so full humanness nobility of the soul and harmony are the goals of confucian moral cultivation something to which all people are susceptible, at least to some degree, because the human virtue can't be realized for oneself alone. Good manners, proper customs, kindness, and social harmony converge. And he says, a man of humanity wishing to establish his own character also establishes the character of others, and wishing to be prominent himself also helps others to be prominent. To be able to judge others by what is near to ourselves may be called the method of realizing humanity. And to be a fully human person, a real person, one merely has to start out by being a good son or daughter or brother or sister or citizen. 
and he says there are five universal ways by and the way by which they are practiced in is three the five are those governing the relationship between the ruler and the minister between father and son between husband and wife between elder and younger brothers and those in the intercourse between friends these five are universal paths in the world wisdom humanity and courage these three are the universal virtues by which they are practiced as one some are born with the knowledge of these virtues some learn it through study some learn it through hard work but when the knowledge is acquired it comes to the same thing some practices or some practice them naturally and easily some practice them for their advantage some practice them with effort and difficulty but when achievement is made it comes to the same thing confucius said love of learning is akin to wisdom to practice with vigor or vigor vigor is akin to humanity to know to be shameful is akin to courage he who knows these three things knows how to cultivate his personal life knowing how to cultivate his personal life he knows how to govern other men and knowing how to govern other men he knows how to govern the empire its states and the families so interestingly confucius did not teach about um benevolence directly perhaps because it's not susceptible to precise formulation perhaps because humanity is not something that we can be taught or perhaps because confucius like so many other sages was as aware of his own limits as he was humanity's promise and he said and this is going to be my end quote for confucius i have never seen one who really loves humanity or really hates inhumanity one who really loves humanity will not place anything above it one who really hates humanity will practice humanity in such a way that humanity has no chance to get at him is there anyone who has devoted his strength to humanity for as long as a single day i have not seen anyone without sufficient strength to do so perhaps there is such a case but i have never seen it so saying that pretty much you can love humanity but you also have to um be virtuous yourself and almost like living by example is a very virtuous and benevolent way to live because if you yourself hold yourself to high values then people around you will be um impacted by that and that leads to your family your friends your wife your husband etc um you imp- just be by living a virtuous life and upholding yourself to be a noble man or woman you are impacting humanity as a whole and it's very um it's very interesting practice and i i really like confucius as a man and how he is depicted through text i think that he seems very relatable and it's honestly a um beautiful practice of confucianism but next we will get into the buddha and buddhism so buddha sorry that was me using my hands to talk but buddha is someone that I, his story i'm very familiar with um his real name was siddhartha gautama he lived from about 560 to 480 bce and um he is the major source of meaning and purpose for over 2 billion people 
he was a sage, yet more than a sage. Among his many names, perhaps the most enduring are the Awakened or the Enlightened One, um, which is the original meaning of the Buddha in Sanskrit, and the Compassionate Buddha. Yet, for all his influence, we have very little factual information about him. Most of what we know comes from oral tradition and myth. Um, unlike Lao Tzu and Confucius, Siddhartha Gautama was born into wealth and power as a son of a prince or a raja in what is today Nepal. Siddhartha was intelligent and alert, a talented student and athlete, and legend says that he was the first-rate, uh, a first-rate hunter and archer that enjoyed a rich and active life. And he was an only son, and he was spoiled and indulged by his family. And he became um, a womanizer, essentially. And at 16, he married his cousin, which, but this doesn't seem to have slowed down his pleasure seeking. And him marrying his cousin is not like a moral thing. Back then, it was very, very common. So let's just say he got married. And the young prince lived in protected isolation, surrounded by servants who catered to his slightless whim or slightest, slightest whim, like anything that he wanted, he got. And um, one version of his life claims that Siddhartha's parents took great pains to shield him from the ugliness of life, even surrounding him with young, attractive servants to spare him the sight of the ravages of even age itself. So getting old and his parents tried to protect him from knowing about poverty, hunger, sickness, and death by seducing him with every imaginable delight in trying to confine him within their um, palace. So Siddhartha, Siddhartha would experience only luxury and pleasure in his life. But he was not content. As with many young people, curiosity and rebellion led him away from home. And during secret trips out of the palace to a nearby city, he saw three of the now famous four signs that altered his life forever which was a destitute and homeless beggar, so a homeless person, a dead man being prepared for cremation, and so death, and a diseased and handicapped person. And the seeds of the Buddha were planted when Siddhartha encountered his first sight of suffering. So before his forbidden excursions outside the family compound, he had no real idea of what sickness or old age could do the, to the body and spirit, and he had no sense of the depths that poverty could reach. He was unaware of the power of grief, and the prince he had paid, or the prince, the price that he, I'm sorry, I can't read today, but the price he'd paid for living in a cocoon of pleasures and hidden from the suffering of others was a feeling of bored unease. But ignorance could not protect him forever. Driven by the restless boredom that almost always accompanies an unproductive, self-indulgent life, he felt compelled to stray outside. And all the pleasures of his wealthy family could not quell his nagging sense of discomfort. He simply had to know more about life. And he had no one to talk about um, his troubling questions except for his servant, a hired companion who was also his guardian and bodyguard. And to every question Siddhartha raised about life outside the family compound, his servant could only reply with the great sadness and resignation, yes, master, there is no escape. Old age, sickness, and death, 
such as a lot of all men. So, in today's language, we might say that Siddhartha had his eyes opened, his naive unawareness was spoiled forever, and um, no longer were his pleasures as sweet. Siddhartha could not shake the haunting images that he saw of old age, sickness, and death, and his anxiety grew. How, he asked himself again and again, could anyone be happy if ultimately there is absolutely no escape from suffering, disappointment, sadness, and loss? If no one escapes, why are we born at all? How could any woman want to give birth knowing what awaited her child? None of his family or servants could answer him. And walking outside the palace grounds one day, deep in despair, he saw a wandering monk. And um, this these monks turn away from pleasure and severely limit all sensual appetites in order to achieve salvation or peace of mind. So this is called an ascetic. So an so ascetic. Oh man, dude, this is gonna give me such a tongue tie. But asceticism involves long hours of prayer and fasting, living on plain food, wearing simple clothes, and um, monks in many cultures live an ascetic life, not aesthetic, ascetic, so A-S-C-E-T-I-C. And in Western traditions, Old Testament prophets were often ascetics, and when John the Baptist and Jesus went into the desert and fasted or lived on locusts, honey, and water, they were going through ascetic trials. And when Siddhartha looked closely into the face of the wandering monk, he was astonished to see serenity, purpose, and detachment. And this experience was the last of the four signs. And here finally was a promise of escapes from suffering via, or via rather, self-discipline and a program of resistance to the ego's cravings and fears. So he concluded that he must leave the security of his home and live as a monk, homeless, with only a simple robe and a beggar's bowl. And he would go to the wisest sages, no matter how far and difficult the journey. He would find someone to tell him the answers to life's most basic questions. Why live if suffering is inescapable? Is it possible to be happy in the face of inevitable sickness, old age, and death? And what is the real meaning of life? So for years, Siddhartha wandered with his beggar's bowl, seeking one master or guru after another. Even though many of them were wise and deeply interested in helping Siddhartha, he did not find his answer. He only found more teachers, and though he learned many clever philosophical notions as well as techniques for meditating and disciplining the body, he found no satisfying answers to his basic question. Finally, tiring of gurus and sages, he settled in a grove of trees on the outskirts of a village in Yuruvela, India. I think that's how you say it. But there, he formed a little community with a few other seekers, and for six years, he meditated, fasted, and concentrated daily on his original questions. During this time, he is said to have conquered most physical appetites and weaknesses and learned how to control, quote, the mad monkey of the mind. And in meditation practices, I have consistently heard of the monkey mind and taming the monkey mind. And if you have looked into meditation, you may have come across this term as well. But in his efforts to subdue his body, he nearly destroyed it. 
he is supposed to have said, when I touched my stomach, I felt my backbone. So his extreme asceticism left him a wasted shell. And in Buddhism, art portraying him during this period of bone and muscle pushing through his skin. And ultimately, Siddhartha realized that his body was an important instrument in his research. And he realized that he must honor the spirit by honoring the body that houses it. And this lesson was clear. The way cannot be found by either indulgence or denial. And he must walk what in Buddhism they call the middle path. So not overindulging and not underindulging or like denying yourself of certain things. And um, one thing about the body being the vessel and an important instrument in his research, I think is also um, resonates really hard with me because of um, I eat a mostly plant-based diet, partially for the reason because it makes me feel a lot better. And also knowing um, that it is the best fuel for my spiritual vessel, which is my body, because I cannot have my, um, you know, I cannot practice and expand myself without my physical body being present um, in the same way that, I mean, obviously I don't know, but if I sit here and I'm withering away and I have other things to worry about other than, you know, meditating, um, then I can't practice what I want to practice. So, Siddhartha's fellow monks were disgusted when he began to take proper nourishment and they had been oppressed with his aesthetic ways in, as signs of strength and willpower. Um, from this, Siddhartha learned another lesson. We must stop worrying about what others think of us and quit trying to impress people if we are ever to find wisdom. He realized that ascetic self-denial can be of value as a temporary corrective for indulgences or as a momentary cleansing but it is not an adequate way of life. And to subdue the appetites to show strength and willpower is a way of showing off, which prevents one from going, growing wise. So Siddhartha returned to his lonely wandering. And one day when he was 30, he sat in meditation under a fig tree and he was given a special bowl of rice milk by a young woman because he reminded her of a figure he had seen in a vision. In her vision, she had presented rice milk in a golden bowl to a single figure seated under a tree and she took this figure to be a god because of a special glow she saw around him and he was of course the buddha and siddhartha accepted the rice milk and according to one legend did not eat again for 49 days another legend said that he divided the milk into numerous portions and these sustained him during the um deepening meditation and after Siddhartha had finished the rice milk, he threw the golden bowl into a nearby river where it miraculously floated upstream. And this symbolizes the fact that Buddhist teachings go against the currents of our ordinary unenlightened thinking, just as Lao Tzu. Just as Lao Tzu. Um, and Siddhartha then ceremoniously bathed in the river and taking the lotus position, um, which is basically cross-legged. It's a little different, but for those who aren't familiar, um, once more, he sat under the fig tree and said, here I shall remain until I'm answered or dead. And the tree under which the Buddha sat became known as the Bodhi tree or the tree of wisdom. And finally, the awakening came, what Buddhist traditions refer to as the greatest event in human history. And it this is so interesting to me. It occurred under a full moon during May of 524 BCE. 
and refusing to be swayed from his goal, heeding some inner call despite all costs, Siddhartha Gautama had transformed himself from a spoiled, pampered young man into the one who had awakened, or the Buddha. And so that's how he became who he was. And moving into just the practices and beliefs, according to Buddhist teaching, it is impossible to explain explain the awakening. Nonetheless, we can get a rough idea of what the Buddha saw, and Siddhartha saw himself and all life as just a part of an unending process of change, a great chain of being through which things come into and leave one form of existence for another. Everything is one, and the whole universe is a system of interconnected, inseparable parts, similar to Taoism, and just rich and complex and composed of all varieties of life, forever moving from one form to another. So just a never-ending cycle. And the Buddha did not arrive at this perception intellectually. He saw it all as once in what we in the West might call a mystical vision. And I personally think that obviously he meditated very religiously um, and that it was him transcending this reality into the next, um, whatever dimension that may be, maybe the astrals, I don't know. I think it's just really interesting to ponder. And now the now Buddha realized instantly how difficult it would be to teach a doctrine that could not be grasped by mere reasoning and that could not be realized by blind faith, but only by unswerving personal diligence. So only the greatest effort could in only by the greatest effort could an individual achieve release from suffering. So the price of wisdom is love of the whole rather than love of any one part, including especially ourselves. So Siddhartha had reached a state of bliss and utter detachment that they call nirvana, which is the annihilation of the ego, a state of emptiness or nothingness. And it is described as a state of bliss because there is only pure consciousness with no sense of individuality, separateness, discrimination, or intellectualizing. And it can't be explained in words because words are limiting and exist to identify similarities and differences. And nirvana is beyond even similarity. It can only be talked about or expressed in contradictions, and it transcends all ordinary experience. And nirvana is released from suffering while conscious. So if you do not understand what nirvana is, don't feel inadequate. Um, It must be experienced and it can't be described or understood. So Siddhartha now had to make another important choice. He could stay in nirvana, meditating and remaining uninvolved with the commotion and suffering of life, or he could share his vision. Legend says that the very earth trembled while waiting for his, his decision, and at last, the great Buddha heart of infinite compassion prevailed. Siddhartha refused ultimate release, and because he chose to stay and help others, become or he became the Buddha. He who awoke, or he who became aware. This helpful part of him is sometimes referred to as the walking Buddha, the man who wandered about once more, only now as a teacher rather than a seeker. So, the Buddha, who chose to remain among people, giving himself giving help to other lost giving himself to help other lost souls is known as the bodhisattva bodhisattva i think is how you say it bodhi in or yeah 
in some branches of Buddhism. The Bodhisattva is an enlightened being who voluntarily postpones his own nirvana to help all other conscious life forms find supreme release. And I'm going to shorten and say a Bodhi. So a Bodhi is not a savior. The Buddha did not intercede for others. He showed them a path. And a Bodhi is... A Bodhi no longer perceives separateness on any level and no longer even perceives a separate self, a being, or a person. So after dedicating himself to teaching his findings, he um, became as significant as what he taught. But to share his message with everyone, he sent groups of his earliest disciples out as teachers, but he didn't seek converts or converts like he didn't try to convert anyone and his monks were not missionaries their goal was to just spread information and people could listen if they wanted but they did not force it so legend teaches that he died from either poisonous mushrooms or tainted pork his last meal was at the humble home of a blacksmith um, which was significantly a person of low status in ancient Asian culture. And soon after eating, he w- fell ill. And he asked his hosts to bury the rest of his food so that no one else would eat it. And calling upon the discipline learned after years of meditation, he was able to control his pain well enough to travel to a certain river. He bathed in the river and then laid down on a mango grove on his right side in the attitude of a lion with one foot on the other. And as he lay dying, he made a special point to tell his closest disciple, Ananda, that the blacksmith was not to blame. And the Buddha also sent special word to the blacksmiths, thanking him for his alms. And by this, the Buddha meant that the blacksmith was blessed for having been a vehicle by which the Buddha would escape the wheel of suffering and attain permanent nirvana. After sending this message, um, the Buddha crossed the river and resumed the lion's pose on a different grove. Just as Socrates reassured his disciples while the hemlock was being prepared for his execution, Siddhartha reassured his followers that change, including death and decay, is universal, natural, and inescapable. And he said, do not weep, do not mourn, O ye monks. As the mother, even at the risk of her own life, protects and loves her child, her only child, so let a man cultivate love without measure towards the whole world, above, below, and around, unstinted, unmixed, with any feeling of differing or opposing interests. Let a man remain steadfastly in the state of mind, walking, sitting, or laying down. This state of mind is the best in the world. After his death... The teachings of the Buddha were handed down in the form of an oral tradition, and not until the first century BCE did monks begin to transcribe these discourses onto ola leaves. These teachings remain so until modern times when the Pali Text Society, Pali meaning P-A-L-I, Pali Text Society took up tasks of editing and printing them. And they are known collectively as the three baskets, the Vinaya Pitaka, rules for monks, the 
Sutta Pitaka, Basic Teachings of the Buddha, and an organized later commentary known as the uh, Abhidhamma Pitaka. Today, so many people produce books, journal articles, and video and audio tape lectures commenting on the Buddhism that the diligent seeker will have trouble keeping up with a year's worth. So, um, his life story is very interesting and beautiful to me. And, um, there are some other, um, concepts in Buddhism that I will cover that I personally abide and believe in, abide by and believe in. So the first being karma. And, um, so among the insights Buddha gained during his search for enlightenment, three realities command our attention, which is impermanence, suffering, and egolessness. In simplistic contemporary terms, we can sum this up as part of Buddha's teaching like this. Although nothing lasts, suffering is everywhere, and the me that suffers isn't even real. And at the core of the Buddha's doctrine is the concept of the primal unsatisfactoriness or dukkha generated by the perilousness of the human condition and by the inescapability, the the inability to escape of physical suffering and sickness, uh, psychological conflict, anxiety and anguish. As if this is not enough, Buddha reminds us that beneath our dissatisfaction lies a profounder insight in the unsubstantial unsubstantiality of existence. I'm like tongue-tied today. I'm so sorry, you guys. But the awareness of insubstantiality is related to the Buddhist doctrines of impermanence or ever-changing or ever-change and egolessness. According to the Buddha, what we usually think of as I or an individual is a continuously changing combination of physical and psychological elements. Out of ignorance, we project a self of permanence onto impermanent conditions. Because all is in flux, we are inevitably disappointed by change, destruction, and loss. In this vision of the fundamental human condition, um, is it pessimistic? Perhaps it would be if Buddha had nothing more to teach, but Buddha promised that through a discipline of meditation, we can learn to control unruly desires and realize what happiness is um, and that it is possible given the facts, not our projections of the human condition. So central to Buddha's teaching is a notion of free will, a belief that we can control our thoughts, attitudes, and behavior, and that thoughts, attitudes, and behavior have consequences. These consequences, their causes, and their control are called karma. And the word karma comes from the Pali word, Pali being P-A-L-I, Pali word kama, K-A-M-M-A, a term referring to the acts of the will that are expressed in thought, word, and deed. The concept of karma combines kama, which is action cause, with vipaka, which is reaction effect. According to Buddhist tradition, karma is the law of moral causation, moral cause and effect. It includes past and present actions and is not to be confused with fate or predestination. Um, Good or bad karma results from our own actions. 
So Buddha did not teach that everything that happens is due to karma. In the first place, different laws govern natural change, physical phenomena, certain psychological processes, and so forth. In second place, if karma alone accounted for the human condition, a person with good karma would always be good, and a person with bad karma would always be bad, yet such is not the case. Indeed, self-reliance and peace of mind come only from understanding karma and living wisely in light of that understanding. No one, said the Buddha, can escape the wheel of suffering who does not understand the causes of the suffering. So the next teaching is the Four Noble Truths, and the Buddha's basic teachings rest on what are these truths. So one is no one can deny that suffering is the condition of all existence. Two, suffering and general dissatisfaction come to human beings because they are possessive, greedy, and above all, self-centered. Three, egocentrism, possessiveness, and greed, however, can be understood, overcome, and rooted out. Four, this rooting out, this vanquishing, can be brought about by following a simple, reasonable, eightfold path of behavior in thought, word, and deed. Change of viewpoint will manifest itself in a new outlook and new patterns of behavior. In a nutshell, the Buddha taught that we suffer because we are partial to ourselves. For example, I cannot be bored listening to you complain about your philosophy class for the umpteenth time unless I am judging you or wishing you were talking about something interesting to me. It's the me that gets bored. I cannot be envious of the attention my parents give my brother without being greedy for more attention for me. If I were not greedy for my share, I would be delighted by his delight. The more self-conscious I am, the more me there is to suffer. So contemporary Buddhist comment commenters and philosophers use the term ego differently from psychologists. They use it to refer to various self-centered, immature, and selfish tendencies. So a person with too much ego thinks of himself or herself as unique and special in ways that emphasize differences. And the loss or annihilation of this false ego projection results in the emergence of the soul or true self or the Buddha nature. The awakened or reborn soul sees similarities rather than differences and acts from love rather than fear, um, helps rather than judges. The bliss of nirvana comes from the annihilation of the self-consciousness and the judgment, greed, and fear that characterize ego. So the Buddha taught that the way we transcend the ego and see the interconnectedness of life is through loving kindness which is like um pretty much compassion for all living things and but it is different to maintain our compassion even with those we already love can we really alter our viewpoint to love every living thing and the next teaching is the eightfold path which um, if you guys have seen my tattoo on my shoulder, it was my very first tattoo. It is of like a ship wheel with eight rungs on it. And this is the symbol that represents the Eightfold Path. So according to Buddha, understanding the Four Noble Truths and following the Law of Karma are keys to release from suffering, but only if combined as a new way of life that combines three vital components of Buddhist practice into an eightfold path of wisdom or pana, 
right conduct, sila, and right mental training, which is samadhi. The first two steps along the Eightfold Path are the steps of Pana, steps three, four, and five are steps of sila, and steps six, seven, and eight are steps of samadhi. So I'll list them one through eight. One, right understanding or views. And right meaning um, um, not necessarily like right or wrong, but like, um, what's the word that I can use? Like, honest. So, honest understanding, right purpose, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness or awareness, and right meditation. So, the modified version is like an Anglo-Irish historian made named Gerald Hurd, who phrased the Eightfold Path in especially contemporary and insightful form. So, this is going to be a lot more understandable for some of us, but one is, so right understanding, you must see clearly what is wrong. Two, right purpose, you must decide what you want to be cured. Three, right speech, you must act. And so this is like right speech and right conduct. So you must act and speak as so to aim at being cured. And this is like cured from suffering. And five, right livelihood. Your livelihood must not conflict with your therapy. And six, right effort. That therapy must go forward at the staying speed that is the critical velocity that can be sustained. Seven, right mindfulness. You must think about it and (laughs) you must think about it. And eight, you must learn how to contemplate with a deep mind. So this still isn't extremely clear to me. And so I'm going to offer another um, like little list that might be easier for some of us to understand. So um, let me see. So right view is know the truth, right intention, free your mind of evil, right speech, say nothing that hurts others, right action, work for the good of the others, So it's like altruism. And then right livelihood is respect life. Right effort is to resist evil. And right concentration is to practice meditation. Right mindfulness is to control your thoughts. So it's pretty much saying um, it's, it's similar to like the Ten Commandments is what I would equate it to. Like just act in a way that holds virtue. And yeah. So it is probably an understatement to note that the wisdom expressed in the Eightfold Path sounds super obvious, um, almost like like trivial because of how simple it is. But simple is not always easy as we often overlook the obvious. So consider that in many schools of psychology, the most important therapeutic event is the moment of insight in which the client sees for the first time some important factor of his or her unhappiness. So something similar occurs in many religions, either at the moment of rebirth or during periods of atonement. The fallen soul sees by the grace of God its fallen nature and finds a way to salvation. One of the most effective treatment programs for alcoholism is Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA, which is based on the list of guidelines for living called the 12 steps. And the very first step 
begins. We admitted we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives are unmanageable. And the um, key to the first step is to see fully that our own actual condition and being honest with ourselves. and the seeing is like the first step of the Eightfold Path. So it reminds us, it helps remind ourselves that the Eightfold Path is designed to change us by changing our way of seeing things or our consciousness, changing our behavior and changing our emotions. And it's designed to subdue our egocentric self or yeah, our egocentric self and our um, egocentric sense of identity by replacing the self-centered me with a compassionate heart. And if I can change the way I view things, I have in effect changed the world. So the difficulty of doing this is underscored by um, a version of the Buddha's deathbed statement to his monks that ends, perhaps someone somewhere will not misunderstand me. So yeah, the Eightfold Path is pretty much just saying like be a compassionate person and do things out of the good of like the greater good and not think of yourself in the actions that you do and doing things because it's right essentially so um also i wanted to say that like that moment of change or that moment of realization to me is similar to the dark night of the soul which i have mentioned in previous podcasts and um it's very, I think that, oh, I was taught that um, Buddhism is it a religion, but a dogma or like a way of life or, you know, like a philosophy more so because you can be like a Christian Buddhist and you can believe these things um, without like worshiping the Buddha. He's not meant to be worshiped. So overall, I think that he doesn't necessarily talk about um like spiritual things like forces outside of ourselves buddhism really focuses on like us being the power in our lives rather than like other forces impacting what we do say and think so it's a very um disciplined practice and it's a practice surrounding the betterment of self which i think is um obviously relatable to all of us So to summarize the sages, the sage did not separate the human from the divine or daily life from a sacred way of living. The sage saw himself as a part of nature in the cosmos, not apart from it. In our rediscovery of the importance of nature, we move a little more in the direction of the sage. In our haste to acquire sophisticated knowledge and its fruits, or the satisfaction of being, quote, experts on the topic, we can easily become unbalanced. So aggressive efforts or yang to manage, analyze, and possess nature overlook the um, inevitable nature of flux. So yin must follow yang. So for example, using complex engineering principles, people build elaborate houses in the floodplains of Mississippi um, or crowd together in California coastal canyons only to see storms and fires bring them down to pursue sophisticated pleasures we crowd into cities which run short of water we dirty the air we pile up on freeways 
perhaps it would be wiser to pursue harmony, a golden mean, and live where we work and build simpler homes where nature welcomes us. In recent years, philosophers, psychologists, ministers, environmentalists, and others have increasingly turned towards Asia to complement as in complete Western knowledge of technique and mastery and social criticisms of elitist divisions have reawakened us to the need to see beyond differences to some of um, some kind of commonality. And perhaps these trends reflect greater sensitivity to the sacred essence of the sacred essence that the sages talk about and maybe not yet in acknowledging the wisdom of the sages, we must not to make the mistake of elevating their teachings above Western science and philosophy or vice versa. To do either is merely to perpetuate the chief problems that the sages address, which is judge judgment, um, being partial, alienation, and division, and arguing and doing something all the time. The Asian sta sage stands between the traditional Western models of a philosopher and a saint or prophet. And saints and prophets of the major Western religious traditions differ from the sage in important ways. The most significant um, difference in the relationship to the one true God or the creator who is distinct from his creatures. So for the sage, all is one and there is no equivalent to the separate God of the Bible. So for the sages, only those who actively work to achieve awareness deserve the title sage and then only if they act on and live by what they have discovered to be true from themselves. No teaching, no scriptures, no theories take the place of experience. When we see clearly, we do not need teachers, scriptures, or theories. When we do not see clearly for ourselves, nothing else matters. So, overall, just to kind of um, summarize the three so... Lao Tzu was kind of just go with the flow. He was the offer of the Tao Te Ching. It, it's very, um, according to him, it, by the way, the Tao Te Ching is not very big, but according to Lao Tzu, error, suffering, and unhappiness accompany all attempts to separate things to understand a part of the whole. So seeing everything as a, as the bigger picture. So, um, Confucius placed great emphasis on the moral example of the like, noble man and just being a real person or a whole person and his he had a general um, root, his teachings had a general root in human virtue, which meant being empathetic and fellow feeling. So a true like altruism and knowing that the pureness of the singular man impacts humanity and humanity is important in tradition so buddha was rejecting the extremes of indulgence or denial and proposed walking a middle path and he was not a savior but he came to an enlightenment and decided to teach other people who also were lost. And he had basic teachings that are the Four Noble Truths that talk about suffering and then the Eightfold Path, which were a kind of code of conduct for living. And 
essentially to escape suffering, you have to reach nirvana, which is, you know, a, a state of emptiness or nothingness. And um, to do so, you must meditate. But overall, the sages are my favorite philosophical archetype. And I just wanted to end by saying thank you so much to anyone who listened. And I appreciate appreciate you all more than you realize. And um, there is a question link on the Spotify version of this podcast episode that you can ask any questions that come up for you during this time. And I will do a Q&A video or not video, a Q&A episode answering any questions that are submitted. And again, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you all. May you go in love and light.